So Jody asked you a question earlier on about what your favorite snack was. Uh, I'm going to ask you a, a similar question, uh, but more I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite spice? So if you have one spice that you can pick that is your favorite spice that you like to put on your food, what would that be? Uh, I know that some of you love hot and spicy food. Others of you, not so much, uh, like my beautiful bride, Lisa, who doesn't like things with a lot of intense flavor. Uh, in our house, depending on the brand, if uh, it's mild salsa, sometimes that has a little bit too much bite uh, for her. But I don't love really hot and spicy food, but I do love pepper. So pepper is my spice. Uh, you can just ask my family. I love to put pepper on everything. And you can typically not get enough. And so for me, once you kind of put pepper on, the first couple of bites should cause you to actually cough for a while before you can eat the rest of the meal. Then you got about the right amount of pepper. I know when I go to a restaurant and they bring that big pepper mill and they start cranking, I usually have to prompt them to keep going, keep going, keep going. I'm sure I've contributed to carpal tunnel syndrome for some of these people, uh, but that is mine. What's your spice? Today in our text that we're going to look at, we're going to see that Jesus invites us to be a kind of seasoning that impacts the, the world. That is part of the kingdom of God, to be this kind of seasoning as we look at this idea of being salt. Uh, but before we get there, I want to just go back for a minute to the last couple of weeks. We've seen in Matthew chapter 4 that after Jesus' baptism and after his temptation in the desert, that he announces his kingdom mission, the ultimate mission in verse 17 of chapter 4. Then he begins to call his co-workers out, and he invites some people to join him on, on this mission. And then he goes on the road, and he conducts this extraordinary teaching, preaching, and healing tour of Galilee. And uh, we see that right at the end of chapter 4. And understandably, it begins to gather a crowd. People start to see Jesus for who he is. They start to see the implications of what this kingdom is about. And they, they start to get curious and they start to draw near. And they come close to him and they want to understand a little bit more of what this is about, what he is about. And then it says how he sits down with his early disciples, not the 12 yet, but those who are just the early adopters. And he begins to teach them about the kingdom that they are already experiencing. And it seems that others were eagerly listening in. So it says in Matthew 5, verse 1 and 2, it says, One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. And then he begins to unpack and to teach this expansive message that we have come to know as the Sermon on the Mount. And he starts to talk about what it means for people who respond to the arrival of God's kingdom. And as we continue to read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, in the weeks ahead, we'll see that there are essentially three different groups of people that Jesus is addressing. He's talking to the disciples, he's talking to the Pharisees, religious leaders, and then thirdly, he's talking to the crowds as well. So first of all, the disciples... He was intentionally teaching these few early disciples, those who had already made a commitment to him as the Messiah. We don't know how many there were at this point in time. There's at least four. We see that at the beginning uh, or in chapter 4 of Matthew. And so we're not sure how many others there are, but these early disciples are the ones that Jesus was teaching intently. Then we know that there's the religious leaders, the teachers of the religious law, the Pharisees as they were known. Uh, they were hanging around because they were not only intrigued by Jesus' teaching, they were actually threatened by it. And the kind of culture, the religious culture that they had established and that they were creating was now being threatened by the very things that Jesus was teaching and the things that he was proclaiming. 
And so if the disciples were some of those who were supporting Jesus and the early adopters, these Pharisees were more the ones who were the opposition as they were threatened by Jesus. And then there was also the crowds. They were maybe neutral. They were curious onlookers. They were people that were intrigued. They saw Jesus and the impact that he had on other people. They saw the teaching that he did. They saw the miracles that he performed. They saw the fact that whoever Jesus came in contact with changed. They saw transformation. And so they were intrigued, but they weren't really sure who this was yet, and they weren't ready to commit to him just yet. And so as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus is training his disciples. He's, in many ways, rebuking the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and he's inviting the crowds. He's inviting the crowds to consider him and this kingdom. And this week, as I was reading these texts again, I was wondering, I wonder where Matthew was at this point. I mean, he's the author of this gospel. He's the one telling the story, but he actually doesn't even record his own commitment to Jesus until later on in Matthew chapter 9. So I wonder where he was at this moment where he's recording this thing about the Sermon on the Mount. Was he one of the kind of curious onlookers, kind of looking from the distance, still wondering who is this Jesus? Maybe because he was a tax collector, maybe he was already one of those religious legalists in some way, similar to the Pharisees. I don't know. Or was he already one of the committed disciples following Jesus? I wonder. I also wonder where we see ourselves in this story. I mean, I don't know about you, but I I know that in my life, as I think about the different stages of my life and the places that I've been on my journey of faith, that there are different components of each one of these groups of people that I can identify with. There have been phases in my life where I was that curious onlooker and kind of looking from a distance, kind of seeing and understanding in part who God was, but trying to figure out if I could trust this Jesus. There was also times later on when I became a follower of Christ where I go through a season where it's more like this religious legalism. And then there have hopefully been many times in my life where I've been the committed disciple and follower. And I wonder for you too how you identify with different stages uh, of this life that we are called to and the different components of these people that we see here. Scott McKnight, he says that while the Sermon on the Mount remains the greatest moral document of all time, it isn't just about how to behave. It's about discovering the living God in the loving and dying Jesus and learning to reflect that love ourselves into the world that so badly needs it. And you know, the Sermon on the Mount is really a description of a people that are gathered together by Jesus. They are surrounding Jesus, and they are being transformed by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so we really only come to understand the Sermon on the Mount as we understand Jesus, because he is the king of the kingdom. You know, some point to Jesus as the new Moses, which we've already seen and we've talked about some. There are many parallels between the two of them, but Jesus is even more than that. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the law and the prophets were pointing to. Jesus is the authoritative Messiah. He's fulfilling all the intention of the law. Jesus brought the Torah dimension. He brought the the wisdom dimension. He brought the prophet dimension. He brought all of those to completion and to fullness. And so in many ways, during the Sermon on the Mount, as he's teaching these different groups of people, what he's doing is he's pointing out this new kingdom that he is ushering in, this new covenant, and he's putting it in contrast to the oral tradition and the law of the Pharisees and this kingdom that had become so rigid and legalistic. And it was really irresistible for so many people. As people watched, 
as they observed who Jesus was, what he did, as they witnessed what happened in their own lives and what happened in the lives of others, it changed them drastically. And so the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes that we looked at last week. Uh, These attitudes and postures of this radical kingdom culture. And what we need to understand, as Chandra taught us so well last week, that the Beatitudes are neither a means of entering nor advancing in the kingdom, but they are expressions of of spirit-produced kingdom life, revealing to the entire world that a transformation of creation is beginning in Jesus' disciples. And that is why we are blessed. You know, the tendency, I think for so many people, including ourselves throughout the ages, has been that we we want to kind of tame the Sermon on the Mount. We want to kind of tone it down a little bit. And it's starting with the Beatitudes and then also looking at all the teachings that come in the chapters to follow in 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. And one of the reasons, I think, for that is because it kind of comes, becomes like an indictment into our lives because we look at what Jesus is teaching and proclaiming and then we look at the evidence and the reality of our own lives and we wonder why is there such a gap? Also because... It often doesn't align with some of the power cultures that, we, that seem to be dominant in places in the Western church, at least the ones that align more with politics and Christian nationalism, whether it's in the United States or whether it's right here in Canada. We look at issues and definitions of what power is, what faithfulness is, what commitment to Jesus and the kingdom is, and sometimes they just feel like to be in such a contrast. And so our tendency at times has been to domesticate it to look at the the Sermon on the Mount and try to tame everything that's shocking, that's demanding, that's uncompromising, and try to render it it harmless. We try, but Jesus, it seems, would have none of that. You know, people have taken different views of it. Some hold it up as the impossible ideal. Uh, Martin Luther saw the Sermon on the Mount that way as this impossible ideal that we could never actually obtain, and therefore we have to just embrace fully this gospel of grace. Others saw it as an example for another age, that it was, you know, when Jesus returns, then this is the kingdom kind of picture that we will have at a future time. Others saw it as kind of like an optional elitism, that it was just for some, that, you know, if you choose to accept this assignment, you know, think of James Bond or Mission Impossible movies, and it's sort of like this elite, you know, this special core of God's army would take this up. Or others saw it as more like the entrance to the kingdom of God. If we can just do these things and obtain all of these things, then we will find favor with God and enter the kingdom. And yet all of these are not accurate imitations of what the Sermon on the Mount is intended to be. And as much as we try to tame or disregard or dismiss the radical kingdom culture of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points to him as an example Jesus gives us his spirit, and he helps us to understand the invitations that he gives us to enter into it. And his Holy Spirit and his presence and his example is a game changer for us. And it's a call for us to live out this kingdom culture in remarkable and small ways in our lives. That it's possible for all believers not to earn your way into the kingdom, but to experience it when you believe and trust in who Jesus really is. And it's, it's really an inside-out transformation. It happens as we encounter Jesus, we get to know him more. His spirit is, is filling within us and giving us power, and it gives us the ability to live in a very different way. And as Jesus starts to transform the inside of us, it starts to have evidence on the outside. People start to notice, and it starts to impact them.
And one of the ways that we can tell that the Sermon on the Mount is actually a call for us to live into and to be obedient to today is because we can look at just the end. We can begin with the end in mind. We can look at the end of the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, the text that Florian read for us. We can also look at the end of uh, Matthew's Gospel in, in chapter 28. And both of them point us to this. So in, in chapter 7, the very last teaching that Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount was this parable about building your house on rock or on sand. And the difference was is that it's the people who listen and obey that are building their house on the rock. If you go right to the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, what we know as the Great Commission, Jesus says it this way. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And so Jesus makes it very clear that these are to be lived out, that these are a call to experience and to obey. And so today's text Jesus, in fact, declares to those early disciples to be impacting the world as salt and light. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And these are statements of fact, and they are also prophetic declarations of the now and the not yet nature of the kingdom. In other words, it's this invitation or this challenge or this call to become more of who Jesus has already made you to be and what the kingdom is already about. And it's this invitation to continue to enter deeper into the kingdom through obedience and transformation. So in verse 13 to 16, it says this. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So Jesus says to these early disciples as he's teaching them, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not the temple, not the Torah, not the Pharisees, not the law, not Jerusalem. You are. He says, you are the light of the world. You are the new kingdom priests and rulers in this kingdom together with me. And he invites them. He he calls them to be a light in dark places, to be seasoning to the world that impacts all those around them. So he says, you are the salt of the earth. As we know and understand salt, and I know some of you love the salty snacks, Uh, salt is a preservative, it's an essential element in our diet, it's for flavoring, it has all kinds of purposes. But the reality is, is that salt just really impacts whatever it comes in contact with in a whole variety of ways. And the widely held views are that Jesus was not necessarily pointing to any one aspect of the salt, but, but that all of these different dimensions of what salt is and what it does, it, it's this metaphor of when salt comes in contact with things and people, it changes them. And so Jesus is saying as you go into the world and as the kingdom is transforming you, you too will impact other people. And so just continue to live out this kingdom culture, to live out this truth, to allow Jesus to transform you, to embrace me more is what he's saying. And other people will start to experience this kingdom as well. Because you have. So what Jesus is saying to these disciples and what he's saying to us is that your life matters. 
Your life makes an impact. Your life is impacting people around you all the time in more ways than you know. And so salt is this metaphor of the fact that it just changes things significantly, just like our lives can. And then Jesus says, you are the light of the world. So not only are they salt of the earth, but they are the light of the world. And it's like this call to mission. It's like this call to go to the dark places of the world where there is evil and darkness and where people just are far from God and they don't know God. And be this light that people can start to see from a distance. And some commentators point to the salt of the earth as maybe referring to the Jewish people and their connection to the land and the impact on the Jewish people. And how the light of the world is this call to the Gentiles and this Gentile mission for those who are far from God. But regardless, it is this call to be this light that is like put on a hill or a lamp put on a lampstand that people can see the difference of the kingdom and it pierces the darkness. And your life plays a role in that. And that's what Jesus is saying is that you can live in such a way that you are like that light of a city on a hill that people can see far off. So live that way. Jesus' disciples, they possessed a kingdom life that caused them to produce good deeds in their life. And the same is true for us. So kingdom culture is one of transformation by all who experience it. And so this text really invites us to reimagine our role in the world as God's agents of redemption. Just as these disciples, these early disciples we're called to be salt and light, intentional sojourners in the world, knowing this Jesus, being transformed by him, and then living out of that. And we're called to do the same, speaking and living the truth and the power of the gospel as a tangible witness. It happens in extraordinary ways, and it happens in very ordinary ways in the everydayness of our lives. And so the discussion question for you today is simply this. How is Jesus inviting you to be salt and light at this point in your life. You can maybe put a comment in the chat or you can text it in to the number that's provided, but it's just an opportunity to reflect on, Jesus, what are you saying to me today? How are you calling me to be salt and light with the people that you've put me in contact with, with the context that you've placed me in? How can I make a difference? As I was working through this text again this week, another thing struck me about salt and light, and it has to do with proximity. And this truth that we experience salt and light differently in terms of proximity. What I mean by that is that salt can only actually be experienced up close and personal. Salt only makes an impact when it actually comes in close contact with that which is, it is meant to affect. Just like it gets embedded within the food and, and it, it becomes part of that food in terms of seasoning or preservative or whatever use it is. And in a similar way, our lives as salt need to come in close proximity to other people. Uh, in order to be salt, like it's like there's no social distancing in salt. It's up close and personal. But light is different in the sense that you can experience light from a distance. You see light that is far off and it's far away. And so one of the things that struck me this week, and I felt like the Spirit of God was saying to me, was just this idea that Part of how we impact people and invite people into this kingdom culture is that we actually have alignment in how they experience us from a distance or how they experience us up close. Is there integrity in our lives so that the way that people see us, both as individuals but also even as a church, the way that people see us living this kingdom life from a distance, is it the same experience that they 
experience when they come up close and personal. And so maybe the invitation that Jesus has for you today is just that there might be more alignment. You might call it gap control, that we would narrow this gap between how people experience us from a distance or up close. That it doesn't matter, that it, it, it works the same. It feels the same. The experience is the same for people. And I think that's part of this kingdom culture that we are called to. You know, Jesus said, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that people will give glory to God. And this will happen corporately. This happens individually. Just let me mention a few. Just this week, I received an update uh, from the board chair of Multiply, our MB, our Mennonite Brethren Mission Agency, where Marianne Berg has just recently been appointed as a board member. And in this report, uh, he celebrated that globally we saw 377 churches planted and 50, over 5,500 people baptized in 68 nations as reported by our 89 global workers and 91 national leaders. And we praise God for that. We give glory to him because you know what? That's part of our collective story. We're part of that story of being salt and light. In our Advent Giving Project, we've been celebrating in these weeks that we had a goal of $45,000 and $66,000 was raised to be used through relief efforts through MCC and our partners in Panama, and we praise God for that. Through each of our three sites, the people of our congregations, you have been impacting people in all kinds of ways. People have been salt and light to people living in poverty to a single mom's nursery, to an addiction center, to those caught in human trafficking, and issues related to food security, and many more. One example of that is, is Kevin and a small team of people were distributing grocery cards, uh, grocery gift cards recently to people in need, just to be a blessing. And then having the opportunity for us to hear some of those stories coming back and people praising God and giving thanks, and we joined them in that. And I tell you these stories of just a sampling in order that we might praise God together and give glory to him, just as Jesus encouraged us to do. And so, you know, each day, every one of us has an opportunity to be salt and light in our interactions with people, how we spend our time, are we generous with our time, are we generous with our money, our expertise. We can be salt and light by just refusing to live in fear and hopelessness, but actually grabbing onto and trusting Jesus in times of difficulty. We can be salt and light of just showing sacrificial love to other people all around us. Because you see, in the kingdom of God, the possibilities are endless. I want to conclude today with just reading this text, Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16 from the message. Eugene Peterson, he paraphrased this, and there's just some beautiful words here. And I want you to just listen. Allow these words to soak in and to challenge you as our closing today. Jesus says, let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste good godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Amen.